May 1st of 2003. This was the day I got off a plane and stepped foot on Canadian soil, this time to stay. I landed in Halifax, Nova Scotia after 14 hours of hectic traveling and prolonged transit times in airports. My last day in Saudi Arabia was nothing short of interesting. After an extremely long conflict with my brother and his wife that occurred over a period of six months or so, where they were both insisting that I would never leave Saudi and that I would never see Canada, where they took my passports away from me and they attempted to rip me off the sole dream that I lived my entire life up to that point, striving to accomplish. Regardless of all of this, I was still able to overpower both of them through my father, who just wanted me out. So finally, a month before my flight was scheduled to depart, I got my passports back from my brother and quickly finished up all my paperwork to exit the country safely and come to Canada legally under a work permit and on a scholarship funded by the Saudi government to specialize in the field of anesthesiology. This was it. I was weeks away from accomplishing the one thing I thought I could never accomplish, to leave Saudi Arabia for a very, very long time. My bags were packed and ready to go weeks ahead of my scheduled departure date. And all my medical textbooks, as well as my furniture, had been shipped via sea ahead of me to arrive in Halifax, sometime close to the, to the time that I would physically be there. For once in my life, I saw a glimpse of that silver lining behind the clouds that people spoke of. I was ready, and nothing, nothing was getting in my way. You're listening to One Godless Woman on the Possibly Correct Network. About two days before my flight, I became severely ill. This was one of the actually worst flus that I ever recall having. Unfortunately, the world was in the midst of the SARS pandemic, and people were being quarantined left, right, and center in airports around the globe. The countdown began, and father became concerned about my health. To me, this was shocking. The day I was scheduled to leave, my temperature shot up to 40 degrees Celsius. This was, by definition, a high-grade fever, and it was indeed consistent with SARS. I looked toxic, and I felt like I had been poisoned. My eyes were bloodshot, my throat felt like I had swallowed acid, and every joint in my body was weak and overwhelmed with dull, aching pain. This was it. My body had failed me on the one single day that I waited for for near 30 years. I remember laying on my bed crying from the pain and the sadness that this would happen to me at this moment. 
of my life. And I recall father standing in front of my bed telling me that he cannot let me travel like this and that I should cancel my flight. These words that I did not want to hear. He told me to see if I felt any better since I was so stubborn about it all. I spent that entire day in bed angry at God for doing this to me. Why f***ing me and why now? For hours, I would drift in and out of consciousness. At 11 p.m., I dragged my aching body out of bed. I overdosed on painkillers, took a whole bunch of flu meds. I got dressed and called my driver to pack up the car with my suitcase because I was heading to Riyadh International Airport to catch my flight. Father came down with his wife to see what was going on. And I pretended that I was feeling better. I said goodbye and I never looked back. I was detaching myself once again from my physical body. Though I put little thought into my physical actions that day, there is absolutely nothing that I regret at this point in time about what I did back then. I think father hugged me before I left. And I do believe my eyes teared up because I knew that I was never going to see him again and that this was going to be the last time that I would see him and the last time that I would ever see that house. Out of pure obligation, my brother would accompany me to the airport to see me off once and for all. He checked me in and cleared me at the security gate where they made sure that I had permission from a legal male guardian to exit the country. He stood there behind the metal gates. I still remember it till this day. Watching me walk away, he waved goodbye to me and I nodded my head in recognition that this was indeed a goodbye. I went up the escalators. And with every step I took forward, I felt a shackle break off me. I found an empty seat at my boarding gate, which was G27. I sat there with my Kleenex box and I closed my eyes. I was barely conscious sitting there waiting for the overhead call that would say that my flight was boarding. Oh, how I dreamt of this day. But never in my dreams did I imagine myself to be so ill that I wouldn't be able to salvage and enjoy every last second of my final moments on Saudi ground. I took my abaya, which are the head and body cover that we are mandated to wear. I took them off and made my way to the bathroom because I was coughing hard and I didn't want to attract too much attention. In the bathroom, there was a woman who had just finished washing up. And when she heard me cough, panicked, she ran out in fear as she mumbled something about SARS. I looked at myself in the mirror and I could barely recognize my face from the swelling and from the congestion. I knew that I didn't have SARS, but this, this was scary. I washed up and fixed my makeup and exited the bathroom just in time for my flight's boarding call. 
I sat in a faraway seat waiting for the majority of the people who were mainly of uh, Asian and Pakistani background, with some Europeans to board. And once they did, I approached the gate, showed them my ID, and I presented my letter of permission to travel from my brother. And on the plane I went. I had the window seat next to a middle-aged man whom I didn't say a complete sentence to the entire flight. This was only my second time traveling completely alone, and I had never traveled this sick before. I was continuously going through scenarios where I would get quarantined at Heathrow and act out what I would do if that happened. The flight was difficult on my system, which was busy battling one of the nastiest viruses I would ever contract. I had no energy to even keep my eyes open. My Kleenex box was my only friend in this solitary journey of transition in my life. No one approached me on the plane about anything, and I found that incredible, seeing how I was continuously sneezing, coughing, and blowing my nose. Time passed slowly, and I was not able to sleep or rest on this flight. We finally landed in Heathrow at around 8 a.m., and though I was happy to be there, even though my physical state was only deteriorating, I managed to do it. We all know what true crime is, but what about untrue crime? The true stories of innocent people whose lives have been ripped apart and who have not been allowed to tell their stories until now. Listen to Untrue Crime on the Possibly Correct Network as Diana Davison sheds light onto cases where reputations have been ruined, careers have been destroyed and countless lies have been told. Find out what really happens when the finger of blame points to someone who's innocent. Subscribe to the Untrue Crime Podcast by going to www.untruecrimepodcast.com and follow the show on Facebook, Minds.com and Gab for all the latest news and releases. You can check out all of our podcasts by following Possibly Correct on Minds.com. We finally landed in Heathrow at around 8am and I was happy to be there, even though my physical state was only deteriorating. In Heathrow, I grabbed a Starbucks muffin and a coffee for the next few hours and luckily found a nice quiet spot in this busy airport where I was able to snooze for a bit. I woke up in a coughing spell and reoriented myself. I looked like death and it would have been now that my fears of getting quarantined would peak. I checked at my boarding gate and again... No questions were asked. So there I sat at my second boarding gate in thankful shock. I bowed my head down to the floor in order to get less attention as I continued to cough, sneeze, and breathe with difficulty. I slept for the whole six hours. When I woke up, the plane had began its descent into St. John's. My illness had peaked at this point of my quest of achieving freedom. This was the moment I had envisioned all of my life. I felt victorious. Little insignificant man had done it. For once in my life, 
I didn't feel like a failure. I remained on the plane for about 45 minutes, and then we departed. From St. John to my final destination, Halifax. When we arrived, I got off the plane and made my way to the immigration office where my paperwork was quickly checked for accuracy and I was admitted into Halifax finally. I stood on the sidewalk in semi-disbelief, sick, yet charged with an incredible sense of lack of fear. I was not covered from head to toe in a black garbage bag. I was in public. What a luxurious feeling. I got into a cab, rested my head on the back seat, and sighed. A sigh of relief. As the cab drove, I enjoyed every minute of the beautiful scenery of green trees and hills. My eyes had become oversensitized by the image of a dull yellowish-brown sandy desert and date trees that a simple maple tree became so intriguing to me. The cab came to a stop after a 40-some minute drive. I paid the driver and got my suitcase and slowly walked into the beautiful lobby of the Lord Nelson Hotel. I finished all the formalities at the front desk got my key, and up to my room I went. I undressed, bathed, and then ordered some room service. I enjoyed the feeling of being a female alone in a hotel room without a male guardian, and not being afraid or referred to as a whore who was waiting to get fucked by a man who's not her husband. Because that's how it works in countries like Saudi Arabia. Over the next two months, I would enroll in a local driving school to finally learn how to drive. I came to Canada two months early intentionally. My medical training wasn't set to start till July. But I had planned on learning how to drive here. Women in Saudi Arabia were not allowed to drive back then, or to even learn how to drive. So this was one of my first goals to accomplish in this new life of mine. I attended classes regularly, and when I got my driver's permit, I began my actual physical driving lessons. I want to pause here for a bit to express that one of the most difficult things I've ever had to learn and accomplish in my life was driving. I recall how I used to sit on bus stops and watch with extreme envy and sadness Teenage girls drive by in their cars. And I used to feel so debilitated and depressed that I was 26 years old, a doctor, yet I was unable to operate a motor vehicle or memorize a route to get somewhere. I had become crippled by the imprinting and brainwashing process of the Saudi regime. My driving instructors would ask me where I was having difficulty exactly and why I was failing every other driving test. But I could never give them a solid answer because I truly didn't know why. All I knew was that I had to overcome a deep-seated fear that I could not and should not drive because I was a woman. It was as if I had a mental block and a residual effect from my life in Saudi Arabia. In my head, I was still in Saudi and thus had limited privileges as a woman. Four driving tests and $3,000 later, 
I finally passed and got my first ever driver's license. Now I had a car and the license, but I still couldn't drive. I refused to operate my car and I continued to take the bus to and from work for the first year while my car sat in the parking garage, rusting. In my second year, I finally broke the wall of fear and got in my car and began driving around the city. I never drove too far, and I now drive with confidence, never had a car accident. If you're looking for a great book to get lost in, I highly recommend The Man with the Black Valise by John Goddard, a fascinating story about tracking down the killer of a young girl in the late 1800s. One glorious October day in 1894, a drifter carrying a black valise met 13-year-old Jessie Keith on the railroad tracks and attacked her in such a way that people thought Jack the Ripper must have fled London, England to wander loose in rural Ontario. To solve the crime, the government called in Detective John Wilson Murray, the true-life model for Detective William Murdoch of the popular TV series Murdoch Mysteries. His prime clue was a black valise. The man with the black valise traces the killer's route through three Ontario counties, a trajectory compiled by Detective John Wilson Murray. Though emotions ran feverishly high, the region's farmers and townfolk kept their heads to try to bring the killer to justice. Get your copy of The Man with the Black Valleys by John Goddard online on Amazon or at your local bookstore. While you're online, please show your support for the podcast by leaving a review on your favourite media player. You can check out all of our podcasts by following Possibly Correct on Minds.com. Now back to the podcast. Though driving was my main challenge, I had several several other that surfaced as I became a free Arab woman living in the West. I discovered that I was extremely anxious and unable to properly deal with men. I did not know how to talk to them, and I also didn't know how to function without the help of a nanny or a driver. Another thing that I wasn't prepared for was the culture shock that lasted for six long months where I was alone here and at some point was going through a terrible divorce after I married a Saudi man whom I thought I had known. Ah, yes, my first marriage. What a total fuck up that was. I met Jay in Saudi. He was the son of one of my patients and to make a long story short, he proposed I accepted, I came here and he followed me months later. We got married here. He beat me up and abused me. I walked out on him the morning after our wedding night and within two months we were getting a divorce. Then he married his first cousin on top of me. He took her as a second wife. He made me pay for my wedding and he made me pay for my divorce. All this was happening while I had just started intense medical residency training, which was excessively demanding, physically exhausting, and mentally draining. And to top that all up, I was struggling with culture shock while I had to learn the ABCs of single life living, cooking my own meals, washing my own clothes, and cleaning my own home. It may sound silly to you, but if you never performed these tasks before in your life, it all becomes very overwhelming. There were times where I felt defeated and contemplated calling it quits. 
I had completed my internship as well as two full years of anesthesia specialty training in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, before I physically came to Halifax, Nova Scotia. Sadly, those years were scratched out by the powers to be and I was made to start again from zero. So I swallowed my pride and went through the nightmare of a rotating internship once again after two years of intensive specialty training. It was in this year, the first year of my internship, that I was introduced to the devastating world of racism in a hospital setting, which I wasn't able to do much about. I began receiving emails on the internal server of the hospital, calling me all kinds of names, but the ones that stand out most were Muslim pig. I should probably explain why I tolerated what I did in my first four years of anesthesia training here. As a medical resident, it's become a norm and in fact an unspoken rule that you are to be treated like the scum of the earth, that you are to work like a slave, and you are to eat less and less every day and sleep less and less, and you are not supposed to complain. You are, to put it nicely, regularly abused, mistreated, and almost always shit on by your seniors as well as by the nursing staff. This is how it works. These are the internal politics of hospitals, and it doesn't matter where you are in the world. Being a female does add more stress to the situation because medicine, like it or not, is an old boys club. And nurses are predominantly females. In Canada, they are unionized, and they love playing the power game with us female residents. They being the ones in power, of course. So in the end, we, the worker bees of the hospital, who are the residents, tolerate a lot of stress and abuse. And the majority of us are scared to speak out. So why didn't I speak out, you ask? Well, for many reasons. I was on a scholarship that was funded by the Saudi government. The Saudi Islamic Sharia law is what was being applied to me here. I was made to sign documents to make this happen. I was a resident and had to go through the bullshit associated with my training in order to get a pass or a good evaluation to proceed from one year to the next. I was also a Saudi, which meant I had less privileges than my counterpart Canadian residents who were here for years. They knew the system and understood it. They had become friends with the staff and with each other. I was on a tight leash by the Saudi government who don't believe in human rights or women rights. I was one of the few females in the department here. The rest were all men. So I always felt that I had something to prove to the men of the department who would say things to me like, and I quote, women who want to have families and babies should become librarians, not doctors. In my second year of anesthesia residency training, there were two Saudi residents that I was working with, both of which were male. One of them I knew quite well as he used to work with me in the same department as well as the same hospital back in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. 
He left for his scholarship one year ahead of me and thus was my senior when I arrived in Halifax. It was very unfortunate that he would end up in the same department and hospital that I was in. I was always creeped out by this man, if you could even call him that, I guess. He was your typical uh, slime-of-the-earth Saudi man, you know, the, the typical representation that I knew. He was greasy, dirty, ugly, and always looked at me with nasty lust in his eyes. That always made my skin crawl. He had made multiple comments when I worked with him in Saudi Arabia about how he was looking for a wife number two. He had recently been married to one of his female relatives. I worked with these two men here in Halifax, and I never trusted either of them in any setting or situation. At this point of my life, I was well aware of the limited thought process of a Saudi man, especially when it comes to dealing with women. One of them, who was single initially, made direct passes at me up to the point where he got married to another Saudi female resident from a different department, whom he actually ended up dumping his first wife for (laughs) after they entered a relationship together here in Halifax. I simply ignored both of these people as much as I could while maintaining a high degree of alertness about their presence. The other residents, however, who were Canadian, began sensing my dislike and distrust of these two men. And I was viewed as an irrational person mostly because they didn't understand where I was coming from and why I was being so harsh and judgmental. Life went on as busy as it could get for an anesthesia resident and our department decided to send the entire group of residents on a nice two-day weekend winter retreat at one of the Fall River cottages near the Martok ski hill in Halifax. It was the winter of 2004, and this sounded like a good break and a reward for all the hard work and all the night shifts that we had been pulling off at the hospital. So the retreat was organized by a group of people, names were gathered, groups were divided on the basis of who was going to go out on Friday and who was going to go out on Saturday. Car arrangements as well as food and drinks were all being planned out well ahead of time in order for us to make the most of this promising two-day retreat awarded to us as residents. During the weeks of scheduling and planning, I kept trying to get information on when these two Saudi guys were going to come out to the cottage. The department had booked us two cottages to do with as we please. And I believe the thought was the guys would be in one cottage and the girls in another. This was all fine with me, but I still wanted to know who was coming out and when, especially M, the guy who I was most alarmed by. Unfortunately, the day came for us to travel up to our retreat spot and I still did not have the information that I wanted. So I drove up to the cottage following two other Canadian uh, male residents in their cars and it was a lovely Friday evening. Though the drive was a bit lengthy, it was nothing less than exciting for me. I was going to go skiing at some point here and that was a first for me. 
I also was finally going to have a chance to connect with my colleagues without the stress of being in the hospital environment. We arrived at both cottages late Friday evening and we were the first group of residents to get there. The second group was going to come up next morning. The first group consisted only of male Canadian anesthesia residents and myself. We talked, we joked, we ate, and we had tons of fun. It was one of the few times where I felt at peace with myself and everyone around me. I decided to go to bed early and asked the guys where I should sleep. The suggestion came up that I could go sleep at the other cottage, but I wasn't too happy about being alone there. So three of the guys offered to give me their upstairs room while they slept on the couch as well as the floor of the living room. I agreed to this option and up to my room I went where I unpacked, turned up the heat, brushed my teeth and fell asleep on a lovely cozy bed. When I woke up early Saturday morning, the guys were all dressed and ready to go skiing. They asked me to join them, but I decided it was still too early for me as I still needed to shower and get ready. So I asked them one final time if they knew when M and the other Saudi guy were heading up. Still, I got no specific response. So I told them to go ahead and that I would join them later on in the day. I had the cottage all to myself, so I decided to grab quick breakfast, then went up to my room, undressed and hopped into a relaxing bubble bath. The events that would take place over the next 20 minutes of my life would eventually become detrimental to my life, both as a Saudi female as well as a doctor. For it is over those unforgettably slow 20 minutes that I would once more become the prey to an animal who is a Saudi man. If you'd like to make a comment or respond to the One Godless Woman podcast in any way, please reach out to us to at One Godless Woman on Twitter or email us to onegodlesswoman at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.